Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Dr. Eva Seleb. Dr. Eva is a resiliency consultant, an author, speaker, and executive coach. She's written a number of great books. One is Your Health Destiny, another is The Love Response, and she has a number of other books beyond that as well. She's currently just signed a publishing deal to write Resilience for Dummies, you know, those yellow books that explain everything. Well, she's writing the book on resilience, and she explains a little bit about what's going into it. It sounds like it's going to be fantastic. Now, in this conversation, we covered a lot of ground. I think you're going to get a lot from this one because Dr. Eva is just such an expert in her in her space, so she's able to really explain certain things in a way that I haven't heard before and also share her personal journey to discovering some of these things for herself and what her personal practices are, how she approaches mindfulness and resilience throughout the day for herself. So there's a lot here. I think one of the concepts I found most interesting was how Dr. Eva considers opportunities that come her way and the type of energy exchange she looks for. Anyway, let's jump in. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have one extra minute, please leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. Well, welcome. And do you, well, first off, do you prefer to be called Dr. Eva, Dr. Celeb, Eva? Um, usually people just call me Eva. Um, my, my clients have a preference of calling me Dr. Eva. It's sort of their preference um, just because they feel good doing that, but it doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> I've, I've been calling you Dr. Eva in my head, so. Yeah, that's what people, it's like it, it flows, you know, it's just what people call me. So, you know, I'm, I'm cool with it. Cool, Dr. Eva. Um, I wanted to start, if you could just share quickly what your medical background is or your, you know, the the training and the education you've done. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm a board certified in internal medicine. I practiced medicine not for very long, for about five years in internal medicine. However, I did stay in the Department of Medicine for close to 20 years. Um, It's part of uh, instructor in medicine at Harvard and working for first Harvard for basically for Harvard hospitals for 20 years, either in general medicine or as a um, mind body medicine teacher, practitioner, a healthcare provider. So um, about five years, well, you, right when I finished my residency, I started working in the mind body medical field, which fortunately was part of the Harvard teaching hospitals, part of the hospital where I was working at anyway, as a primary care doctor. So I was fortunate to be able to do both. Um, starting out and then about five years into primary care, I decided, you know, I'm done with the primary care. I want to learn about alternative medicine. So I stayed on as I was the medical director at the time of the Mind Body Medical Institute, where um, basically it's employing relaxation techniques, cognitive behavioral therapy, nutrition, exercise, and essentially mind body practices to support patients through their illnesses and hopefully get them off medications through chemotherapy, what have you. And so it was both a clinic as well as a research institute where we studied 
um, the effects of meditation and other mind-body applications. Um, so I sort of got to be a part of all of that from the get-go of 1997. And so I've been in that field since that time. And then in 2002, I started studying also alternative things like healing modalities, um, Qigong, um, you know, energy healing, all these different kinds of things and merged all the worlds together about, I think 2003 is when I opened up my own practice of merging all the worlds together and integrate an integration of medicine and providing patients with the skill sets that they need to heal themselves. Um, so that sort of started the practice of coaching and teaching and intuitive counseling and healing that would go on up until last year when I actually closed the practice down and shifted towards the model of coaching um, only, not patient care. Uh, working with corporations and companies to teach individuals and companies how to be more resilient and access what I call the six pillars of resilience, six pillars of resilience, which are physical uh, hardiness, physical vitality, uh, mental clarity, emotional balance, spirituality, or spiritual connection, uh, enhancing uh, relationships, creating loving relationships, and uh, becoming a great leader as being part of a community or a team. So that's sort of the six pillars that I've been working over 20 years, you know, developing the understanding of and the concept of and how to teach that to other people so that they can improve their lives and find love and health and joy and resilience. So that's basically what I've been doing for almost 25 years, 23 years, and um, written four books. I have a fifth one on the way coming out uh, in early 2021 called Resilience for Dummies. And um, yeah, that's basically what I'm up to. That's, that's the long and the short of it. Wow. Okay, cool. And um, I'm interested in that switch you made, I guess, in 97. What, what, sparked, what sparked the transition from a more traditional approach to medicine to starting to explore all these other things? Was that something you were already interested in? You just realized professionally you could do that? Or did you have a moment that sparked it or what was it yes and yes um so you know i i when i was younger i always um had a feeling of something greater i loved all those sort of sci-fi movies where people could telepathically lift things and do things and heal things and i loved you know the medicine women on tv and so that was always something that i was intrigued by and even in my undergraduate years, I studied anthropology. I took the pre-med courses on the side, but I was always interested in culture and especially um, medical anthropology. So, you know, if it was up to me, I would have, you know, traveled around the world and studied indigenous tribes and learned about medicine. Um, however, you know, that didn't happen um, for many reasons. One is, is that I have a father, you know, who is a scientist and that was sort of the predominant uh, mindset in our household. Um, so any sort of imaginative or outlandish ideas I might have had when I was younger kind of went to the wayside as I was more influenced by science and, you know, working in labs and being around doctors. And that was just kind of a given that that's what I was going to do. And, um, and I, you know, was extremely academically driven and you know, I wanted to help people and this is what I was going to do. And also medicine was secure, um, you know, financially. So, um, so that's what I did. And um, when I, I was really 
kind of got caught up in that and the academia and the pursuit of knowledge and fixing things and fixing people and the rush of making a diagnosis and you know dealing with trauma and so i trained at boston city hospital which is a pretty um pretty hard residency i mean it's a city hospital so you've got to work lots of trauma the lots of stuff like that i wanted to be a pulmonologist work in icus and you know be that like the big challenge of like the adrenaline rush kind of roles right exactly that big adrenaline rush and like making the diagnosis and that sort of thing and um and you know during that time i would you know go away i i'm from israel so i would go to israel and meet interesting younger people my age who and it's very much influenced by the east by you know by asian beliefs and was starting to meet a lot of different people who were into tai chi and yoga and meditation and they were becoming my close friends and they were artists and you know the idea of serendipity and i think that's like when the celestine prophecy came out and that book and right i remember that book uh, yeah, yeah so it was you know back in the early 90s um and i was just so kind of enthralled by that and also like i also in college i had you know tried some mushrooms and things like that and had some great awakening so it wasn't like not this wasn't happening along the way it just wasn't enough to push me out of this notion of medicine you know going down the path that you're supposed to go down um so i was the, the influence was always there throughout my life of something more expansive something bigger um but you know what there was no security there so um and then in my um second year of my residency which is three years i was doing a procedure in the intensive care unit and was stuck with a, a needle that was infested with hiv with aids and uh, which is basically the turning point for me. Um, it was the very beginning of 1996. There was no solution to HIV. Uh, we had patients, you know, it's a city hospital, so we had, you know, a huge percentage of patients that were just dying and having, you know, dying horrible, gruesome deaths. And there was just no cure, nothing you could do. And a study had just come out from the NIH. Um, basically saying if you get exposed you have to take this cocktail of medications which turned out to be about 14 pills a day for six weeks mind you nowadays it's like a pill um, so it was 14 different it was you know some of them were the same drug but you just had to take multiple amounts of it and um, but counted it was 14 pills a day for six weeks and I was a mess I had no coping skills I cried all the time I um, did a lot of bargaining, you know, if you let me live, I promise kind of stuff. And, but I really did a lot of soul searching and said, you know, if I do come out of this, okay, I, I'm not even sure I want to do this. Like, what are you doing? You know, is, do you really want to work in ICUs? And um, so fortunately everything turned out okay. But during that time, I basically made the decision to not pursue a pulmonary ICU fellowship and to I didn't know what I wanted to do. Primary care was not what I wanted to do, but I just knew that I needed to figure it out. Um, so I was, you know, I, I followed a midwife around. I did all kinds of things to try to figure out what it was I wanted to do. Um, and just that year was a succession of really hard events that sort of hit. They, I had, my dog died, my grandfather died, 
my apartment burned down and somebody I didn't know was harassing me and writing letters to the medical board. So I had to fight that in court. And then to try to get her to stop harassing me. And then um, my father had a heart attack and that all happened within like a five month period. And needless to say, you know, that year just let, you know, I just dropped to my knees. I was just constantly trying to find, you know, the silver lining and lift myself up, you know, and I would get felt like I kept getting knocked down and then lift myself up and I kept getting knocked down. And I just, by the end of 1996, I had no energy to get back up. I, you know, looking back, I can tell you that I was clinically depressed. I had no will to live. I had no energy to live. I had no energy to be anything or do anything. I couldn't remember anything. You know, all the knowledge that I had accumulated from medicine was just not even there in my brain. I just, I couldn't, I could barely function. And then that went on for about four months um, until I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened. I just know that some, a friend took me out to dinner and I came home thinking, yeah, because she said to me, you know, we miss you. I've been the same for almost a year since the needle stick. And I just, I don't know, I just woke up. Something inside of me, a light went on and I thought, gosh, you've been walking around feeling victimized. You've been walking around saying, why, why me, why me? And you're not asking the right question. You know, the right question is, why not you? Why not me? You know, shit happens. You know, nature just assumes let's a forest fire burn as a flower bloom and it's not personal. And it's not why me, but what can I do because of, you know? And I, I need to figure out why I've, I'm so eager to beat myself up and to self-loathe and to feel victimized. And I need to figure out ways to improve the way I approach life. I need to know more about stress and I want to know more about other things other than just what I'm doing. This medicine that I'm learning isn't enough. So that's when I decided that when I finished my residency, I would volunteer um, at the Mind Body Medical Institute so I could learn. Um, again, if I had, if it was up to me, I would have gone and traveled around the world to learn from, you know, other. Still wasn't okay yet. Still no, wasn't I didn't have, I, I owed, my, you know, in, in medical, in the United States is very expensive. I I think by the time I was done with my residency, I owed two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow! So it just it financially wasn't possible for me not to work. Um, so it was so that was more. It was like it was a reality. You know, I just I really financially had to go get a job. So um, so that's what I did. And so after just being volunteering there for a year, they actually asked me to be the medical director, which was great because I was able to work part time as a primary care doctor and part time as a medical director and eventually just completely you know, gave up being a primary care doctor. But that's sort of the, the big turning point of sort of what catapulted me to say enough. You know, this, all these things have been part of your reality your whole life. And then when I left my primary care job, I was really miserable. And my mother said to me, you've been wanting to study alternative medicine all over your life. Just do it. So, you know, I worked part-time as medical director. Like my dad would constantly say, you're the poorest doctor I know. <laughs> Literally living paycheck to paycheck and just studying with people. You know, finding, you know, I would follow an acupuncturist around or find a Qigong master to learn Qigong with, or I started learning about energy healing. And, you know, a lot of it was for my own healing. Um, 
but I was, you know, absorbing everything like a sponge and then incorporating it to what I was already doing and teaching. So that's basically how it happened. It was sort of an evolution. It's pretty interesting how, and I found this for myself, I'm making an, another big career transition right now, but even when I started my last company, it felt like there's an instinct of what you should or could be doing or like a vision. And reality seems like often like a heavy weight trying to keep you away from that saying, no, you can't do that. That's scary. That's not possible. That's not reality. Be more realistic. You know, there's all these pressures and you have to, in some cases, sounds like your story, you kind of get blasted enough times that say, actually, <laughs> now you're just here and there's no other option. But it, it's interesting how for a lot of people, I think you had that instinct about alternative medicine, you'd, but there's all these external pressures and reasons why it's not possible until you have to see it. Yeah. And, and also because like, you know, allopathic medicine, which is Western medicine, is actually really interesting and fascinating and helpful in many ways. And it wasn't, you know, it's also understanding that everything has a time and a place, you know, and everything has, you know, a balance to it. And, and for me, it was important to actually learn Western medicine, allopathic medicine, because there's value in the integration of the worlds. Um, right. It's, it's like, we're not, we can't only live on one side and not the other. And so it's also understanding that there is a timing and there is a rhythm in the flow to, you know, there's a period of learning and a period of growth and a period of learning and a period of growth, just like nature. You know, we don't have winter year round. We don't have spring year round. There's a flow to it. Um, so I think there's also that we have an impatience of thinking we like, I want it, I want it now, as opposed to like understanding that there is a, you know, a, a sort of a, a boiling period, you know? Yeah. And there's a reason you go through those different stages. They all lead exactly to the eventual path. Yeah. Exactly. Makes sense. Yeah. It's been interesting. I'm, I'm moving into a space where a lot of people are kind of unaware of it. I'm sure like a lot of the alternative medicine and things you were thinking about 20 years ago, where now those are, I think a lot of young people would think of a lot of those things as very normal, contemporary, regular approaches to health. But we're not then at all, right? And well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think you know. So I started, like I said, I started in 1997. I mean, in but to think that that it actually exist existed in 1997 is huge. I mean, people like Herb Benson, who I worked for, and Deepak Chopra, and Andy Weil, and and these you know were really pioneers. They broke down the doors so people like me could walk through. Um, we still had more doors to knock down. We still do, but it's like the givens, things that were, that I, you know, people would argue with me for and that I had to like give them evidence as to why I don't have to do anymore. It's just common knowledge. So there's just so many things that are different now that are just accepted. And when you wrote in 2000, I think your, the love response was 2007 or so? Nine. 2009, I mean, right. Well, I wrote it in 2007, but it was published in 2009. Sure. Right. It takes about two years for publication to happen. So. Yeah. And, and sorry, actually, before I ask that, I just got to ask, you know, and if, I'm not sure if your dad's still with us or not, but did he learn to, or did, what's his, what was his perception of what you moved into? Did he learn to understand well, it? Did he? Well, fortunate, knock on wood, he's still here. Um, he's had a Amazing. lot of, he's had a lot of health problems. He turned 83 this year. 
Um, you know, he's had one cardiac event after another. So has my dad actually. Yeah. I had a little stroke this year. So we are every day I wake up and, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful that he's still here, but he, in his older years now, as he's like kind of looking at life differently, especially I, really with this pandemic, he has been able to appreciate, um, why I'm, I changed, why I'm doing what I do, I'm doing, and to really see its value. But for the long time, for him, it, you know, again, and also his age group, for them, it's about security, right? And to, you know, the way thing, things happen, like, you know, he wanted me to become a medical director of an organization and, you know, have that secure title and that secure job and you know what he believed I deserved because I'm like so good at what I do and it's you know very complimentary um at the same time it was a struggle for me because he couldn't see me right didn't really appreciate like you know my abilities or who I was um and of course when I stopped caring about that that's when he actually was able to be able to see right I still remember I had 10 employees in my first company and my dad kept asking me, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> and I think for him, yeah, it's like a, a, you know, he came from a different era and you work for a big company. He worked for IBM for 35 years or whatever. Um, you know, you, you get a, you get a good job and you stick with it and you're set for life. And, you know, he also did entrepreneurial things, but for, for whatever reason, there is some fear factor there. So. Yeah. Again, it's, you know, and, and for most people that's, how it is. So, you know, there's really, I always think that there's, you know, three, basically if people will fall into one of three types. So you're either somebody who um, needs a hundred percent structure. You just, you prefer not to have to think out of the box. Um, and, and when I say this, none of this is good or bad. It's just where people fall, where, you, where your comfort zone is. And it's comfortable for them to, you know, kind of be given instructions, you know, do this job, do it this way. And, you know, and, and work is just work, you know, just like I go to work, I plug in, I do what I need to do. I do what I'm told and then I leave. And, and the rest of my life is where I, I find my joy. And that's, you know, perfect, right? Um, it's not perfect if you're unhappy, but if that's, your happy spot, great. The, the second kind of person is a person who needs the structure, who wants to know that there is a paycheck, that there is a job, that there is some form of structure, but they are entrepreneurial. So they wanna have freedom to make decisions, to be creative, to innovate, and most people fall into that category. That they wanna have some, some semblance of creativity and freedom and choice and input and feedback. So most people fall into that category. And then there's a subset of people who can't work for anybody. They don't want this structure. You know, they create their own structure because the, the structure that already exists is limiting. And they are constantly looking for new ways to create and innovate. And you know, once they're done with one thing, they move on to the other. That would be me. And I think that would be you. Um, and I believe there's more people like that are, that are existing in the world than ever before because we're being told that it's okay. You know, with the internet and seeing all these YouTubers and, you know, people that can make a living on their own, 
through what technology has offered us, there's more people that have a belief that it's possible. Yeah. So consciousness is shifting, right? Consciousness, consciousness is changing. And, yeah. and our feeling of the possibility of security has changed, right? I, I believe that I can be secure if I do this. That's what allows the catapult somebody to do something that's extreme, right? Even an extreme athlete. They, it's a belief that it's possible. That like, mm -hmm. you know, it's, you kind of have to have a, some, some level of delusion, you know, like it's in a positive way, right? And so, and again, like there's no bad or good. I think it's just like a shifting of perception and consciousness that we have seen that in the past, you know, most people just, you know, did what they were told. They took everything at face value. And, you know, now we question everything. Yeah, really everything, actually. It feels like... Um... Truth is being challenged, uh, like in this in this era, more than ever before. Where fact is basically, I think we're realizing the internet to me show is starting to show us that truth is subconscious or is is um, is perce is perception, and that you and I can experience the same event or conversation and have two different truths about it. That what you believe is true is going to be that which supports your belief system. Right. So if your if your perception like take for instance that everybody has basically two they live by two stories. One or one or the other story. You have the story of your suffering and the story of your success. Or the story of your victimization and the story of your victory. What it, you can whichever way you want to label it. But you have a positive story and you have a negative story. Those are the lenses that we see life. So either your your lens, your brain, your vision is expanded and you're standing at the top of a mountain and you can see everything and for what it is, which is basically the, you know, the wise person that has lived a life and can knows, or you're like the infant who knows very little and only sees what's in front of you, right? So we have a narrow lens where we feel victimized, scared, unsure, insecure. We all have that, less confident, self-doubt, like we're human, we're, we have that. And then there's the other one that's wise in the ways of the world, understands and has a trust, a faith, right? In themselves or in spirit or what have you. So there's, those are, we, we exist in both places and we feel good and our, you know, dopamine is flying through our brain. We feel one way and when dopamine's dropping and serotonin's dropping and we feel low, we feel another way. In which every way you feel, you can find evidence to support that story. Right? So, so we have, we live in a world where everyone has different realities. They have different perceptions. They were brought up differently, different DNA. And so they're going to find validity to match their stories. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I see, I've seen it my whole life. And it's one of the things I... Yeah, I'm most grateful for in terms of whatever happened as I was growing up, I was given this belief that anything I work hard at is possible to achieve. And and like and I have my dark side and I I deal with depression as well and I bounce back and forth, but generally my optimism and belief and vision to see something that doesn't exist and then make it exist is a true gift, right? Um how how I'm interested in the positive negative story or or this 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 fearful side or um, empowered side, how do you how do you how do you foster the the positive side? How would you like? I, I imagine there's some physical aspects of it and how you're treating your your body and how do you how would you start that conversation with someone? 
First, we go hand in hand and just knowing that it's all normal, right? So um, I think it's important for everybody to know that you're not a bad person if you've got negative beliefs, you know, um, it's not because we all do. We all do. It's just normal. Like I said, it's human to go back and forth. If you didn't have fear, you wouldn't run away from a lion, right? We needed to have negative emotions and, you know, limited beliefs so that we could survive in the wilderness and, and not be something else, you know, some other animals prey. Um, the, the, the truth is, is though that we actually don't need that mindset anymore. And we are, we've, we are eight, we are capable of rising above that small perception, the fight or flight response to, uh, utilize higher brain centers and consciousness. And that's sort of the, to understand that when, when the, the brain perceives that you are in threat, that for some reason your sense of self is no longer secure, that's deemed as a threat and the fight or flight response physiologically will be triggered. Yeah, amygdala kicks in. Amygdala kicks in, the fight or flight response kicks in, which means adrenaline, cortisol primarily are being produced and they're gonna change the physiology of the body, but also the mind. And what happens is, is that your fear centers, your amygdala and, and other fear centers will literally send signals to higher brain centers and shut them down. Because it's not, if you're being chased by a line, it's not the time to figure out how to do your taxes or have global you know, ideas of like how life should be about the meaning of life. It's not the time, because if you want to have a life, you've got to get the heck out, right? You've got to, you've got to fight or fly, literally. So, so when, when you're under threat, let's just start with the basics. When you're being chased by a lion, you're not going to start contemplating the meaning of life and you're not going to have access to higher brain centers because they're really not useful. You need to figure out how to, how to get from point A to point B. You need to focus and get out or save your life. So that is necessary for survival of the species when we're living in the wilderness or needing to get away from prey. Now, having said that, we don't live like that anymore. It's very, very rare, if ever, that your actual life is actually, in reality, in this moment, being threatened. The problem is, is that the brain doesn't distinguish between threats. As long as it's a, a perceived, which is key, a perceived threat to your security, that stress response will be activated. And we learn about threats to our security from the moment we're born. Because as an infant, you have no ability to take care of yourself. You are completely reliant on other people. And it's in the womb and in the first year and a half of life, when the brain in that developmental period is developing a belief of hope and trust that my needs will be met by the external world. This is pre-verbal, pre-verbal wiring of neurons, of your stress response, which is learning whether I am loved and safe. And a lot of that has to do with the nurturing and love. We can see that with the animals who lick and groom one another, moms who, who breastfeed or hold whatever, the comforting, attending to a child's needs. And that's going on for you know, the early years of development until we're able to be off on our own, which is gonna be somewhere in our early teens.
Well, these days it's about 35, about 35 these days. Well, <laughs> but, but the, the template. No, I understand. Yeah. Template, the template with, with, within which you perceive yourself and the larger world within which you exist, but basically understanding whether or not I am enough and have enough to be secure and whether or not I will be enough and will have enough to be secure being formed in those early 12 to 15 years of life. And after that, everything else is additional. So what happens is as the rest of the brain is forming, which is the prefrontal cortex and the higher brain centers, which happens after the age of 12. Yeah, it happens through your teenage years up till early 20s, right? Yeah, but that stuff gets used later. When the fight or flight response kicked in, you don't have access to that stuff. Yeah, because your brain goes into basically conserving energy. Well, you, you're going into behavior mechanisms that are automatic, right? You don't want to have to think about something. You want to be able to do it automatically. So the stuff that's become automatic, the template, which is behavior patterns, understandings, what ways we've come up of understanding who we are, sort of knowing that I'm valuable because I exist, as opposed to I'm valuable because I keep quiet. I'm valuable because I work hard and do well. I'm valuable. So, or, or I'm, I'm safe if I keep quiet. I'm safe if I do my work. I don't get yelled at. I'm safe, right? So we, we uncover, this isn't something that we're conscious of as adults. It's something that's becoming part of the template that says I am safe and secure when. And so those are the habits we develop and that we stick to. And we also develop habits that we stick to that help us feel better, which means make the discomfort, anxiety go away. Because if that anxiety and discomfort go away, that means I feel safe. So again, we develop coping habits that help us feel better that aren't necessarily healthy, right? There are ways so we might become uh, workaholics because when I work, I feel like I have a sense of control and that sense of control helps me feel more secure, right? So again, people don't consciously think this way, but that's why they're driven to do the way they do, to have the tendencies when people say, well, I'm a perfectionist. Well, you aren't a perfectionist. Your tendency is to seek perfection because when you have perfection, it lets you feel better, right? People label themselves like help them see that, you know, the label isn't actually defining you. It's your tendency because that's what allows you to feel more secure. Right. So that's sort of basically, you know, the long, the long explanation of, for what you asked. Well, yeah. And I, I, like, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life coaching people through uh, maybe as the leader in a company, but now I'm shifting my role doing other type of retreat work and coaching work. And that is one of the things that I, like I actually, if I write down what I hope to be able to achieve is to teach people to see past that fear-based programming, right? And to understand that there's, a, there's another side of life beyond that. And, um, and there's a few people I've worked with where I've, you know, it started with things like, better sleep and like better physical, like, so their physical bodies get into better shape and starting to help them understand this, like you say, this unconscious programming that we, that we have. Um, it's like, you have to get people to see that there's another side, like there's a bridge you can cross. Um, where, where would you start with someone? Is it on the physical side? Is it on the psychological side? Yeah. You know, where, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the first thing I like I do is, is explain the physiology. That's the first thing. And then what I'll do is I'll have them notice what happens 
when they're in a positive, what a positive thought or feels like in their body and what a negative thought feels like in their body. So the first thing is connecting them with self-awareness and the stress response so that they can, they can experience for themselves how physiologically their thoughts, how their thoughts affect them physiologically and how the, their physiology affects their thoughts. So creating a mind body connection and making the mind body connection. And then we talk about, you know, the limiting beliefs that literally keep us limited from doing things and notice how that feels in your body. And then let's look at a positive belief and notice how that feels in your body and how does that motivate you? And I mean, uh, and I'll, you know, I'll give you an, we'll do an example right now because it's really easy and it's really fun. Uh, but you know, that doing stuff like that, and then we talk about, okay, now that you've got this, let's do a breathing technique and let's see how that feels. Do you feel like you're more, you know, it's more that this, you know, how do you, and I, so we I have them think about a stress and like how capable do you feel of handling it? What's the mindset? What's the story? And then we do a little technique to shift, a very short one, either have them think about something positive or do a breathing technique and they feel differently. So again, I teach through experience. You know, and so then they see, oh, that's different. So then we like, oh, say, okay, well, let's look at ways that we can support you to be connected with the positive story. Like, what are those things? Well, better self-care habits, right? What are things that are going to fuel me to be at my best, to feel at my best? Well, those include self-care habits. And why? Those include positive emotions and positive thoughts and why. Those include positive relationships. Those include being connected to something larger than myself. So those are, that's where the six pillars come in, right? So yes, physical health, mental clarity. Like, so there's all different, you know, techniques, but ultimately it's bringing that person into a state of self-awareness so that they can shift at any given moment using the tools that they've been given because you're going to go back and forth you're, you're not always going to feel good just not that's just not life life is hard but you want to be able to be able to maintain your state of balance so that you have the wherewithal and the bandwidth to handle the hardships yes yes it's interesting one one of the things uh i've done a, a 10-day meditation uh, Vipassana meditation. And in that, I definitely understood a new level of psychosomatic healing and understanding that back cracks and pain in my neck and things go away when you just sit and focus on the energy of your body, focus on the sensations in your body. And I'm often intuitively, but not sure, you could probably fill in the blanks here, intuitively instructing people when they have an issue or when there's something they need to work out to just sit and basically helping people get into their body. I mean, that's what nature of work is all about. There's no app to track your performance. It's about you writing down how you feel each day and thinking about it and reflecting on it. That's right. So, so, so much of what you're talking about is actually just getting into the body. And I think it feels like people are very, I feel like most people are spending a lot of time walking around like a head without a body these days. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say these days, always. You think forever? Yeah, well, maybe forever. If you look at, um, you know, Leonardo da Vinci talked about that. I mean, in his writings, he, he, he talked, I mean, how long ago? 500, 600 years ago? 
he talked about how people were mindless and they they eat without you know they eat without tasting and they they smell without smelling and they walk without looking he talked about it 600 years ago i mean that's just human nature right i mean there was a time where we 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 did smell the roses and we're more present in nature but you know human nature is to be efficient to get stuff done and to find the fastest and easiest way to do something so you know in our in our desire for you know innovation and getting stuff done we also lose the quality of being present so and of course we had descartes who separated the mind and the body in medicine and you know, decided that they were separate. So that sort of set up in allopathic medicine anyway, the separation of the two. But it's been just part of our culture for a really long time. Yeah, it's maybe just accelerating at this point with, with the amount of information and technology and distraction we have. Well, it's we really just an acceleration. To. Yeah, but, you know, we just don't have to, right? We don't have, we don't, you know, people don't live near nature. And, you know, they're, they, are, they don't need to pay attention to how they feel because they've got something else to telling them what they feel. They don't have to go to bed when the, when the sun goes down because they've got light. And they don't have to pay attention to their body when it's tired because they have caffeine. So, you know, we've had, you know, and these things have been around for a while. Like I said, we, we, we devise ways to make things easier. But in that process, we also make it, you know, less efficient to pay attention to the best antenna we have which is our body mm -hmm. so it's you know it's realigning those connections and not putting down technology or the advances that we have but finding a way to incorporate them into also being more connected and more aware yeah and that's a huge part of my work right now is helping people use technology but use it in a way that they're in mindful control of it and that it's not overriding so much of their life. Cause I, what I see is what you, when you describe the whole, basically the brain's response to stress and fight or flight, you see, like you said, that's not the condition we live in anymore yet. So many people wake up every day and feel like that pretty much all day just because of email or something simple. Right. 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 And again, it, and it's, it's really about becoming more self-aware right? Of noticing, okay, my life isn't under threat. It is emails. It doesn't diminish that it's not stressful to have a million emails waiting in your, in your, in your inbox, but it's also like understanding that, okay, so I, I'm not actually being chased by lines, but just understanding that reality. And then knowing that you can actually take some measures to, to calm the physiology and calm the mind so that then you can actually develop some organizational skills Right. So for me, it's not just, okay, let me teach you some meditation skills. I also teach them organizational skills. Then how do I then approach all the emails in my inbox? How do I create more organization on my desk or in my home and declutter, maybe use some feng shui um, so I can create more harmony in my out, my environment. Right. So it is about, you know, creating a skill set and tools that are available to us to ease, create ease in our life while also being able to create ease within our bodies. So as I'm listening back to this conversation, I'm struck by just how much of what Dr. Eva is talking about can be found in the Nature of Work Foundations program. Our program is all about getting in touch and in connection with our body, with uh, our senses, and with creating systems and processes to create a balance 
with our natural rhythms, with our natural energy flows, and to really optimize the way we feel and execute on things every day. So if this conversation is resonating with you, I highly encourage you to check out natureofwork.co and check out our program. It truly has changed the lives of, of many, many people. So anyway, let's jump back into the last few minutes of our conversation. It just gets better from here. I want to actually ask you about The Health Destiny. Um, it's a book you wrote, oh, that came out in 2016, so you probably wrote it. Yeah, 2015. It came out, the, the, pay, the hard copy was 2015, and the paperback was 2016. So it was, gosh, I think it was written in 2000, started writing it in 13 or 14, something like that. Yeah, you, you know, you talk about how your thoughts and emotions actually shape your your physical health comes from your thoughts and emotions. Could you just speak to that a little bit? Well, it's, it's, it's the same as being connected, like that idea of being connected to the stress response, right? So everything's connected to the stress response because your body basically, I mean, stress, all stress means is that something's out of balance. That's it. And so then the body has to find a way to adapt to that change, right? So life is constantly changing and we are living bodies that need to adapt to life. And so you have this incredibly amazing wiring system in your body that is able to pick up changes in the environment both inside and outside your body that then alerts the brain and then the brain then makes decisions on how to adapt because like that's stress response and so i mean we need it to live and to exist and stress is just again part of life like the weather is going to change and you're butt's going to get uncomfortable from sitting in a position for so long and you're going to get hungry and you're going to get cold and the way that your brain actually knows that that's happening is through a sensory system that's coming in through your eyes and your ears and your skin receptors and your gut and your lungs and all these areas that are sending signals to your brain to let you know what's happening in the environment so that it can make an executive decision and create adaptation to that change so that we can survive and all the goal is to be in what we call a state of homeostasis or balance, a state of harmony. So we're invariably always seeking that state of harmony. And so emotions are, are just another form of, of inquiry for your brain, right? So a negative emotion is letting your brain know that you're in danger to, to do something about it, right? To activate an action or behavior to support, to get away or to protect or to do whatever it is to defend. So if we're able to then recognize that our thoughts set off a physiological response, that physiological response is activating every system of the body, from heart rate and blood pressure to metabolism or shutting down metabolism to muscle tension and inflammation. And, and if it's affecting every system of the body, if that stress response is activated persistently, eventually it's going to become what we call a load a stress load or an allostatic load. And when the load gets higher than the resources, something breaks, something breaks. That's pathology, that's what happens. Now, what determines when that break is gonna happen? We don't know, it's a combination, right? It's the perfect storm, it could be genetics, it could be, you know, habits, it could be environment. It's just that the, the stress load is bigger than our ability to handle it and something breaks and that's what then leads to a breakdown of the body. So emotions add to that. 
right? Emotions add to the stress response activity. We know, you know, emotions can add to inflammation. Emotions can lead to an increased heart rate and blood pressure, right? And so those um, emo and emotions are connected with memories. That's how our memory works. It works through bringing back um, information through our emotions. Because if it was just something that was just plain verbiage that had no emotional content, you probably wouldn't remember it, which is why I teach people through experience. It's how they're going to remember it is by having an emotional response. That's when you remember something. So your emotions are connected with memory, both positive and negative. And you, your, your body is, has nerve cells, has little brains throughout the body, like I said, because they work as your signal, signaling messages to your brain. So they're also holding on to memories. So your body's holding on to these memories. And they're not rational. It's like a, you know, a Google search. None of it's rational. It's just, you know, they're just sort of memory upon memory upon memory that's built upon itself that has the, the same general theme. Uh, you're being loved or valued or not being loved and valued or what have you. And so when we are not so aware and our emotions are in control of us, they're also in control of igniting these negative stories and negative memories over and over and over again and letting them giving them power essentially which is going to cause the stress response to be activated continuously and also is going to promote coping behaviors that aren't necessarily healthy ice cream whatever <laughs> right so there's a, what we call adaptive coping or maladaptive coping i'm hungry i eat it's adaptive coping i'm anxious and i eat is maladaptive coping both of them both of them allow us to cope and get through difficulty, but one of them supports us to thrive and the other one's eventually going to cause us to die. Right. So is the book advocating for awareness and to, you know, create space between stimulus and response and, yeah. and be aware of thoughts and emotions? Yeah. So the, 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 the book is actually about really giving you the information about all of it. So it's both um, explaining um, allopathic medicine. So it reviews, um, how the body works, it goes through different systems of the body, talks about the digestive system or the cardiovascular system, and talks about how it works, the anatomy, but it, it gives it in a way that is talking about function. Like, so you can think of it as like the bigger picture, like what is the function of the gastrointestinal tract? Well, it's to digest and, and to absorb and to eliminate. And, and so it's sort of also looking at, well, what are ways in my life that I'm digesting information? And what are ways in my life that I'm incapable of letting go? What are ways in my life? So it's, it's, it's taking allopathic medicine and actually making it also functional, bringing it into life. And then I teach people the Eastern methods of self-awareness, how to talk to the body, and then nutrition, exercise, meditation, and other um, tools that you can employ to support that part of the body to thrive. Mm, very cool. Yeah. It's basically merging the, you know, putting all the work that I did for 20 years into a book. Really? Yeah. Was that, well, what was that writing process like or kind of compiling process like? Well, it was, I'll tell you, it was challenging. And the reason it was challenging. So my other books for me are not challenging to write. First of all, I just write. And then, you know, usually it's like this book, now it took me two months to write. I'm basically, I'm basically done. Um, and started, I started, I think, July 1st, and I'm finishing it up now. So it doesn't take me long to write something. The editing process takes a while. Um, 
the problem with this book was it wasn't something that was just flowing because it was my practice. It was, I also had to make sure that I had all the, the, the data right because I was giving people like the statistics, you know, making sure that I was explaining anatomy correctly. So it's not something that like I, I'm talking about now. You know, I, I write like I speak, right? So it's not that difficult because I can, you know, talk up a storm. But when I have to put in, you know, all the research, uh, all the background, the data, the statistics, and make sure I'm explaining something really clearly that, you know, you're not a doctor. So I have to, that actually took more time. That part was, was the challenging piece. Can I ask, you know, I, you, you coach, uh, you do a number of different things and, and I found writing, writing is a particular type of practice that you really need to be able to drop into for a length of time and really get into, I think, a different headspace. How do you, how have you approached that in terms of balancing different aspects? Like, like, um, I mean, functionally, do you break up your week by certain days or writing certain times or do you just flow? Like, what's your approach there? I'm, so I'm an extremely structured person. Um, you know, I, like I said, I don't like other people putting structure in for me. I, I'm, because I'm extremely structured. So I will, basically right in between clients. Um, you know, I give myself, uh, you know, I sort of give an idea of how long, some, you know, a chapter might take as, you know, when I first, like, this is, it was a new process because it's a dummies book. So they have a, their own way of, of doing things as they have a whole story. Oh, do they give you an actual structure to follow? Format, yeah. So, okay. um, so that was a little bit, you know, weird for me at first, but once I sort of got the hang of the format, you know, you just have to follow the format. I've got an idea. Okay, it takes me to conceive of a chapter. It takes me about three days just to, to write it out. And so I just came up with a calendar of, you know, of the, and, and plus I had other writing projects as well. So there was one week where I had to come up with two lectures, six videos, and I was still working on my book. And it was a week where I actually did not sleep well because I was dreaming in bullets. Of course, and yeah. That was for me like, okay, you cannot work past five o'clock. Mm -hmm. And after that, there's no reading, nothing. You just like go for walks or watch mindless TV. But, you know, during periods of where I'm actually doing a lot of writing, then I create a more, more of a, of, of downtime where I'm really not doing anything, not even learning anything, not yeah, reading anything. I'm not, not putting anything into my brain other than just being, so I'm, like I said, I'm extremely structured in that way and because I need to sleep and that sort of thing. So I, I schedule in when I'm, you know, when I'm exercising, when I'm meditating, when I'm going to take breaks, I've got, you know, my calendar where I have all my clients interspersed, my meetings. And I just, if I feel like there's too much going on, then I will say, no, I won't take more things on, but it's pretty structured and I'll write in between everything. Hmm. Yeah, I don't take like a time out to write. Writing for me just it just flows, I guess. It flows. Yeah, so. and it it totally makes sense. It's a practice from nature of work too to to make sure that you're creating the space if you're doing highly cognitive work to have space away from that cognitive process. Exactly. Because you're actually going to process your next chapter in that downtime, right? Even if right. you're not. Well, that's the thing. So if I feel like I have to be in a space where I can be creative, so if I felt was in a space where I okay, I'm not in a place where I can create a new chapter. Like the week when it was very busy, that was the week where I was editing chapters, not creating chapters. Yeah. 
right? So there's not enough, there's not enough space basically to be creative. Is that right? Well, and I don't want to, I want to have an, I want, well, so that's the thing. It's it's making, you know, the priority, like I don't, you know, this isn't due until so-and-so, right. I'm, I'm like going, you know, hardcore on this because I'm like so thrilled. I'm just loving it, but there's no reason I have to push myself this hard. Um, and also like, I want to have a hundred percent effort in, in this thing here. So it's really being able to put everything aside and, you know, give your hundred percent attention to what you're in, in that moment. So when I'm with a client, I'm a hundred percent with that client, I'm not thinking about my writing unless like they say something that kind of stimulates me. And what I did find was that my coaching got better because I'm being more clear and putting down my thoughts. So then I was able to take my work and then siphon it into the coaching because there's more clarity there. So, but you know, wherever you are, you want to be there a hundred percent. You want to be percent present. And if I find that I'm not being present, then I know I need to take a break. Yeah, that's a great, great signal to listen for. I am. Um the reason I built nature of work too, is I think so many people spend a lot of their day flicking between different things and they're never a hundred percent on anything. And I just think of it as like working at 20% capacity or 30% capacity. So you need more time to do the same amount of work. Exactly. It's just inefficiency. And you know, that again, like that's why I said a lot of what I work with people on is also that, you know, their organizational skills and, you know, both clearing your mind and clearing your desk. So, <laughs> and prioritizing and creating and mind mapping and creating calendars and things like that, you know, very useful tools that help us, you know, have better mental clarity as well as, and also have more energy, Not, you know, being, you know, wasting it, worrying or procrastinating or feeling overwhelmed or whatever that is. Yeah. And are there any particular for you personally, it must, you know, it's always interesting being an expert in these things and, uh, we're still humans and we still have to, I find people think I'm like a master of how to structure work and mindfulness and everything. I'm like, well, I go in waves right now. My desk is a mess and I've got too many things on the go and I need to dial it back. But for you, what are, what are sort of cornerstone practices or, or things that you try and maintain as much as possible for your own resilience, for your own well-being? Well, I certainly, um, I have, you know, really what I, one of the wonderful side effects of COVID for me is that I've been able to be even more intentional about what I do for myself. And um, the, the social pressure of having to go out with people is gone, which is always for me very stressful um, of, you know, spending time with people that I really didn't have much to talk to about just for the sake of having to be social. And so, um, so this has actually enabled me to be really intentional about what I do and who I do it with and how I do it in a way that's always going to enrich me. So, I mean, you can think of it as not wasting time, but it's really more about in what actually enriches me. So, um, you know, and being aware of, you know, basically it's kind of like what puts fuel in my tank and what causes my tank to leak. Right. What gives me a gas leak and what is, you know, what causes the gas to fill up? So, um, so yeah, so for me, it's making sure I, I go to bed at a reasonable hour because I have a window. If I'm not asleep in that window, I might not fall asleep. Because for me, sleep, sleep is 
the issue is an issue. How much do you sleep? I try to get in eight hours. Yeah. Um, but the pro you know, for me, I wake up at the same time every day. So if I go to bed later, I'm still gonna wake up at that time. Me too. Yeah. So it's, I'm very, you know, I, I'm very intentional about, and I like it. I mean, I, I get in bed and I like have a, a book or something that I'm reading and it's cozy. And so I, I make it sort of an enjoyable thing. Um, my mornings are, um, you know, I wake, let's say I wake up at six. I won't take any work on before eight. So I have two hours to exercise or meditate or journal or whatever that is. And if I haven't exercised before my first client, I'll do it right after the first client. So my exercise is a priority, um, which is at least five days a week of like strenuous exercise or just releasing stuff. And then I'll usually meditate right after because I've released all my physical energy and then I'll do a Qigong practice and meditate after. So that's a good hour and a half to two hours right there yeah that's a great that's a great idea the idea of exercising first to kind of to get all the yeah get a lot of energy out and and then to sit you know, a part of the qigong is sort of my cool down right so you know people need a cool down of stretching so that's part of my qigong practice to, so there's still a movement and then i'll sit or lie down into the meditation piece so that's a pretty rigorous regimen that I have at least five days a week in the days that I'm not exercising meditation and um, I'm, I'm always at some point outdoors so I'll either take I take breaks during the day to get outside and for sure we'll take an afternoon off or in the evening I'm out for a walk around my bike uh, go for hikes on the weekends um, or you know play hooky and go during the week whatever so I'm out in nature is often as I possibly can. Um, I'm diligent about eating nutrient-rich food because I love it. I'm a, I'm a, a, a vegetable addict, so I'm lucky that way. And um, so I'm really, um, I have a sort of rituals around feeding myself, which are really loving and intentional. Again, same with the, my socializing, spending time with my family and friends that I actually choose to be around. Um, yeah, so I basically practice what I preach, you know, and I'm, if I'm feeling badly or negatively or having one of a down day, then I nurture myself and I sit with it and journal or talk to someone about it and, um, you know, use it as an opportunity for learning and growth. In terms of your physical workouts, what do you think is kind of the right balance between, say, I don't know, cardio or, or strength training or flexibility or mobility and flexibility are so probably something you want to work on daily through basically whether you're just doing a five or 10 minute stretch or what have you um you want to incorporate also functional movements into your working out because those are the movements our ancestors use so basically squatting you know doing deadlifts or using the hinge um pulling and pushing and twisting so basically walking all of this is going to be in, is in my book, by the way, the book that's going to be coming out, Resilience for Dummies. This is all that's the organization and fitness, all that stuff's in there. Um, but so basically the reason I like CrossFit is because it teaches functional movements. And those are movements that you would use every day and that are going to help you actually maintain balance, flexibility, and muscle mass as you age, which is something we lose as we age. Because it's, you know, you can lift how you lift your groceries or how you 
sweep the floor or pick something up or put something down or lift something up, you know, dishes into the overhead. Um, so you can actually incorporate functional movements in everyday life and that you can do, you know, all the time. Um, but in general, the recommendation is either, you know, 30 minutes a day of moderate cardiovascular exercise where you can actually have a conversation or 75 to 90 minutes a week of vigorous exercise where you can't have a conversation. Um, and that's a week. So, you know, split it up accordingly and at least two days a week of resistance training. The key is, is to do what you love. You know, there's no shooting. There's no you have tos. It's, you know, start small, go big eventually, but get outdoors if that's what you love, go hiking. I mean, I use more muscles dealing with rough terrain and climbing and whatever, and you burn more calories outdoors and you last longer because you don't feel tired, you don't experience any pain. I mean, we know that through research, we call it green exercise. So if you need the motivation, you know, go for a hike, go outside, get on a bike, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, there's plenty of things you can do online. Everybody and their mother is teaching free online classes. Um, I just did a, I did a, um, the other project, the writing project I did was creating videos for iFit, which is part of Nordic Track. So, you know, they all, they all, they all have tons of videos that people can do. Um, so there's a lot of different options for people. You just need to find something that you're going to do. What, what drives you to keep writing books, to keep doing all this? Um, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's some financial need, but beyond that, what, what drives you? Well, it's interesting because it's funny you say that because when I, when I wrote my first book, I wrote it because I felt like I had downloaded and I had this, all this incredible information that nobody understood. And I just needed to make sure people understood. Like, I just wanted people to understand. And that kind of happened for the first three books is like wanting people to understand. And then after your health destiny, I just kind of was like, I wasn't inspired to write anything. I sort of, maybe it was maybe a hibernation period. It was a learning period. I still, so a growth period for me. Like, I didn't feel like I had anything to say. And I didn't feel I had anything to say that other people weren't already saying. Like, there's so many books out there. Like, who, who even is even reading them? You know, why, like, why bother? <laughs> you know? And um, so I just actually wasn't, in, I was writing blogs. I was writing, you know, articles online and things like that. But I didn't feel the need to to write a book and um you know and i still don't really the reason i wrote the last two with the stress management handbook and this one is because somebody else asked me to so i was i was um the publishing houses came to me and asked me if i would write these books so i was like sure and once i started writing it was fun um and it sounds like you, know, you just sort of described it but when these opportunities come at you is what what's your criteria for accepting them is it learning is it uh reach is it well, impact i call it a, an energy exchange it has to be an equal energy ex exchange in some shape or form or offer some sort of, sort of balance right so if it's something that i'm doing um pro bono like a, a labor of love right that energy exchange is that i'm i'm helping you know, a community or people like, you know, it's when you're volunteering and you know you're supporting somebody in need. So there's an energy exchange there for me. Though it has to be done in balance, you can't give everything you have to volunteer. 
because you actually also have to put food on the table and you have to put fuel in your own tank. So it has to be, you know, that has to be minimal. So you're not minimal, but it has to be a percentage of your time that is balanced out by what also is feeding you and supporting you, let's say financially. So I'm doing something that is, a, you know, service and pro bono, whatever, that's, that, there's an energy exchange there because I know I'm helping an underserved population. Um, if I'm, if I'm not doing enough that allows my, my heart to overflow, I'm not going to have the capacity to do that. Right. So there's all other things that I have to be self-aware of the things that provide me with flow. So I, I don't anymore say yes to opportunities just because of money. Let's put it that way. Unless they also fulfill my mission spiritually, which is to bring more light into the world. Right. So for me, it's sort of saying, I, I want to bring more light into the world and I want to be supported to bring more light into the world. So that's sort of the, my criteria. So if that matches the support that allows me to bring light into the world, then it's something that I'll do. So it's the same for what I eat, exercise, sleep, the people I spend time with. It's the same motto. What will support me to shine my light? If that person is negative and abusive, they're not going to support me to shine my light. If, like if I'm around that person, I feel like I'm dwindling then they're not, that being around that person isn't supporting me to shine my light and to help others. That's a beautifully simple framework. Right? It's great. Yeah, no, I love that. That's a, a, you've like boiled it down to the simplest possible kind of equation, which makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of how my brain works, right? I always look for like, well, what does that really mean? What does that come down to? If we laser right in, so if we laser right in, people, Again, what we want as human beings having a spiritual experience is to feel good. We want to thrive. We want to flourish, right? We want to be at our best. We want to shine our light. The problem is, is we focus on what isn't rather than is. We focus on what we don't want rather than we do want. We look outside of ourselves to feel better as opposed to knowing that we have it within ourselves to feel that way. So when we connect with what we want to feel, then life shows up in ways that support us to feel that way. And we're also able to then recognize situations or people or things or foods or activities that don't support us to feel that way. So then we can make a choice, right? I can, I can still choose to go the other route that I know won't support me to be at my best, but then I'll just deal with the consequences. I'm making a conscious choice to do that. Right. Knowing that I'm going to make, might have to work a little extra harder to shine my light that day. Mm. So I'm going to take extra care. So if I know I'm going to be up late and I'm going to be sleep deprived tomorrow, I'm going to take extra care to be even more nurturing tomorrow so I can continue to shine my light. It's like knowing that I have to make a long drive and I'm going to use up most of the gas in my gas tank. So I'm going to make sure that I stop in the next gas station to fill up my tank. It's not, I'm not, it's not that I'm not going to make the drive. I'm just going to be more conscious of filling up my gas tank. That's excellent. I love that. Um, and my last question for you is, and, and I think you've perhaps just answered it in some form or another, but what does it mean to you to live a good life? 
I think that's basically what, for me, living a good life is feeling that richness, right? If I'm in my light, I'm in my light. Now, I'm not always in my light, right? Like, there are certain situations where it's much easier for me to be in my light than other times, right? I mean, and I'm human. I'm affected by things. So if, if I had my way, I'd be in my light all the time, right? And whatever that means, that would mean living in probably warmer weather, right? Being, being out in nature all the time, um, you know, being around people who I adore all the time, right? Like, right are those, what are those things, right? To feel, to feel joyful all the time. So really for me, it's about being able to view and experience my life in a way that brings more richness. So I think it's, it's figuring out exactly what that criteria is. I mean, that's not up to me to decide. I just need to decide to show up, you know, and when I decide to show up and shine my light, life is beautiful. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. And for show notes and more information about the podcast, visit natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering stress and anxiety, you definitely want to check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and the quality of my life and how I feel every day. With that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.